Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome to Behind the Knife Trauma Edition. This is our team's fourth podcast, and we are excited to continue to share our expertise in trauma with you. My name is Dr. Marcy Feynman, and I am a trauma and acute care surgeon in Baltimore, Maryland, as well as the General Surgery Residency Program Director at Sinai Hospital. I am joined by Dr. David Sigmund, PGY4 at University of Illinois at Chicago and Education Guru, as well as Dr. Elliot Hout, trauma surgeon extraordinaire from Johns Hopkins and past president of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Together, we will be your hosts in this episode as we discuss the article titled Universal Screening for Blunt Cerebrovascular Injury, written by a multidisciplinary group led by Dr. Jonathan Black at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Uh, Before we really get into the article, though, David, why don't you tell us a little bit about how we got to the point of even needing blunt cerebrovascular injury screening? Uh, So actually, before I talk about uh, imaging, you know, I'm a big history buff. So I looked into the history uh, of blunt cerebrovascular injury for this paper. Uh, And it's actually interesting. Blunt cerebrovascular injury is actually in the name of the carotids themselves. The word carotid is derived from the Greek word keros, meaning to stun or place in a deep sleep. Uh, While Hippocrates is initially credited with using this word to describe the arteries, um, eventually it was Rufus Vafesius, a first century physician, uh, who was referenced by none other than Galen, who was the first one to kind of really explain, we're going to name this arteries this um, because of the stunning. Um, Galen, uh, in his works, attributed the loss of consciousness to compressions of the carotid to nerves around the vessels rather than the vessels itself. Uh, It would be 16 or 17 centuries, centuries later, uh, before people of the Renaissance really started investigating things and uh, giants such as Willie of the Circle of Willie really started investigating this vasculature and the pathology that could arise from it through things like thrombus and stroke and bleeding. Um, as time wore forward, uh, other giants of surgery such as Verkow linked carotid vasculature to eventual neurological pathology. The first carotid angiogram was performed in Portugal in 1927. Uh, and five of the first six patients to undergo that procedure uh, had major complications and one even died. Uh, however, it soon, lead, soon became a widely accepted procedure for evaluating the carotids. Uh, just to be clear, this is old-fashioned uh, digital subtraction angiography where you need a needle or a catheter placed directly into the carotid and had contrast injected. Um, and there's a big difference between that and kind of a modern CT angiogram that we'll be referencing today. Um, With the advent of modern imaging in the late 80s, the carotids became a structure that could be evaluated quickly and safely, uh, whether in the setting of atherosclerotic disease or, as we're concerned about today, with trauma. Uh, The prevalence and associated morbidity and mortality uh, of blunt cerebrovascular injury is actually pretty difficult to assess uh, because a lot of institutions currently do limited screening for BCVI, blunt cerebrovascular injury, only in the setting of known trauma according to institutional guidelines or national guidelines, such as the Memphis or Denver criteria. In the pre-screening era, uh, it was thought about one in a thousand patients being hospitalized for significant blunt trauma would have blunt cerebrovascular injury. Uh, However, more modern studies have demonstrated that number actually jumps uh, 10 to 30 fold to one or 3%. Uh, And studies looking at blunt uh, cerebrovascular injury after the patient demonstrates uh, symptoms, uh, significant neurologic deficits are seen in up to 80% of patients and mortality is seen even in 40%. Uh, And that's why there's been such an emphasis on determining screening guidelines 
um, and what patients they'd be most beneficial in. Uh, David, I you mentioned screening mechanisms in general, and I know you didn't go into depth, but I do think it's important to talk about what's out there right now, what exists, what a lot of places are doing in order to compare and contrast that to the paper we're about to talk about. So um, if I may, there are several screening mechanisms that currently exist to decide who should be evaluated for blunt cerebral uh, vascular injury by CT angiogram of the neck. You had mentioned that's come into vogue these days, um, and it is the first choice for screening. Uh, The Denver criteria was originally developed in 1996, modified in 2005, and then further expanded in 2012. Uh, The most up-to-date Denver criteria include looking for specific signs and symptoms that are pretty obvious to anybody, including arterial hemorrhage from the neck, nose, or mouth, uh, cervical bruise in patients less than 50 years old, expanding cervical hematomas, focal neurologic deficit, uh, neuro deficits maybe not explained by head CT findings, um, or a new stroke on CAT scan or MRI. And those are all things that we can see, but there's other additional risk factors to take into consideration, which include high energy transfer mechanisms of injury with any of the following. Lafort two or three mid-face fractures are a big one. Mandible fractures, whether it's one side or both sides, uh, complex skull fractures, scalp degloving, which I know we have all seen before, C-spine fractures, subluxation, ligament injury of the C-spine, severe TBIs with GCS less than six, especially, again, if it's not explained by head CT findings, uh, near hangings are a big one, seatbelt signs, the ones across the neck, not the belly with any significant pain or swelling, upper rib fractures, especially those first rib fractures. Uh, Those take a whole lot of energy in order to break. Thoracic vascular injuries or blunt cardiac rupture. Although I think if you have blunt cardiac rupture, you might have bigger problems than a blunt cerebrovascular injury. The Memphis criteria, which is another one that people go to, these were initially developed in 2002 and then modified in 2010. Um, They're similar to some of the Denver criteria. Triggers here include basal or skull fractures with involvement of the carotid canal or with involvement of the petrous bone, cervical spine fractures, neuro exam not explained by brain injury, Horner syndrome, the Lafort fractures that I mentioned earlier, and neck soft tissue injury. Probably the most recent Uh, Guideline on this is from EAST, which was just updated and published in 2020. In short, they recommend following a screening protocol to to, to detect uh, blunt cerebrovascular injury in polytrauma patients, although they don't state a particular preference for which screening algorithm, so uh, dealer's choice. They do, however, state that high-risk C-spine injuries should absolutely undergo screening with CTA, and they also conditionally recommend CTA for low-risk C-spine injuries um, as well. I know that was really dense and is a lot to go through, but I do think it sets the stage, and um, now is a great time. David, why don't you get started talking about the paper? Let's get into some background and the paper in general, results. We'll talk about all of it. Uh, Yeah, so let's get into our paper that we're here to discuss. So this paper was initially presented uh, at AAST in 2020 as a podium paper, and it was published in February of 2021 uh, in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. 
so in 2016, the writers of this paper instituted universal screening for blunt cerebrovascular injury in all blunt trauma patients at their hospital. Uh, they included patients 16 or older who presented following blunt trauma in a two-year span from 2017 to 2019. The team then reviewed all um, the CTA reports to determine which were positive for blunt cerebrovascular injury and which weren't. They then also reviewed the number of vessels injured, whether it was the carotid or vertebral arteries, and also the biffle grade of the injury. Uh, the biffle grade is a radiologic grading system of blunt cerebrovascular injury, which is as follows. Grade one is uh, luminal irregularity or dissection or narrowing less than 25% of the vessel. Grade two is the same thing, but just greater than 25%. Grade three is a pseudoaneurysm. Grade four is total vessel occlusion. And grade five is transection. So then remember, this paper is also comparing a universal um, screening to the screening guidelines. So the authors then used the abbreviated injury scoring for the patients in the study to look for codes that corresponded to uh, the four screening criteria previously mentioned, the Denver criteria, expanded Denver criteria, Memphis criteria, and modified Memphis criteria. They then compared which patients would and would not have gotten a CTA under those guidelines to evaluate you know, the number of potential injuries that may have been missed without universal screening. Uh, one final note, because the uh, Memphis criteria and the modified Memphis criteria differ only by the addition of relatively subjective criteria intended to capture patients with potential injuries to the head, neck, or face, it really didn't show any difference in the abbreviated injury score codes. Um, so this was included as one set in their paper. Uh, so in terms of the results of the paper, um, they ended up with 6,800 patients, 462 were excluded for having isolated extremity injuries, and 51 did not undergo a next CTA at the discretion of the attending trauma surgeon on at the time. So they ended up with 6,287 patients undergoing CTA, um, and of these, 480 or 7.6% were found to have a blunt cerebrovascular injury. Um, so the patient's mean age in this paper was 47 years with a standard deviation of 20 years. Their injury severity score had a median of 17 and an entire interquartile range of 11 to 27. The leading causes of injuries in this paper were as follows. 64% from motor vehicle collisions, 19% from falls, 8% from motorcycle crashes, and 5% from pedestrians being struck by vehicles. The injuries were almost evenly split with 317 carotid injuries and 297 vertebral artery injuries. Uh, this adds up to slightly more than our selected patients because, of course, some of these patients had injuries in both uh, sets of vessels. Uh, among the carotid injuries, 55% had a biffle 1, 29% biffle 2, 12% biffle 3, 4% biffle 4, and none of them had a grade 5, a total transection. Uh, amongst the vertebral injuries, 45% were biffle 1, that's 25% narrowing or less, 25% were biffle two, that's more than 25%. 4% uh, were level three, that's a pseudoaneurysm, and 24% had a four, that's the occlusion. Uh, so just to keep in mind, that's a reversal from the carotid pattern of injuries where pseudoaneurysm actually outnumbered uh, obstruction. Uh, and then there was only one patient that had a grade five, and that was with the vertebral artery being transected. Comparing these results from their universal uh, screening to the potential results had they followed the guidelines shows a pretty stark differences. Uh, the expanded Denver criteria would have resulted in only 2,066 patients getting a next CTA and would have only detected 352 patients 
with injury, meaning almost 130 patients with injuries would not have been detected. Um, and that's the, the expanded Denver criteria. The original Denver criteria would have only scanned 1,122 and detected 271 injuries. Uh, and finally, the Memphis criteria would have scanned only 864 uh, and found 223 patients with blunt cerebrovascular injury. Um, so, you know, the authors say it in their own paper here. I thought they said it the best. Um, they said, consequently, if relying on the traditional screening criteria, the Denver criteria, expanded Denver criteria, and Memphis criteria, we would have then respectively resulted in missing 42.5%, 25.3%, or 52.7% with blunt cerebrovascular injury that was eventually identified by universal screening. Um, so that's that's a pretty interesting result to take from this paper. Um I'll toss it to you now, Elliot. Were there any kind of limitations you saw when you were reviewing this before our episode today? Thanks for that great review of the paper, David. Um, now's my chance to rip the paper apart uh, with all of the limitations from a uh, biostatistical approach. Um, I usually love to do that, but this paper doesn't really have those problems. It is a very well done paper. It is very straightforward, very easy to understand statistics. It's very descriptive. It describes the proportion of patients uh, in these different categories that have injuries identified. It is very understandable to the casual reader. And I think you really hit the nail on the head to say that the main finding of this paper is that if you screen, you will find injuries. And that if you have a much more narrowed focus, you will miss injuries and the issue then becomes, are those injuries important? But I think from a from a limitation standpoint, I don't have that much to add to this paper. Elliot, I, you know, you mentioned that obviously there's pros and cons of screening in general. I know you're a huge screening guy um, in your VTE world in general. So what do you see for this though, as some of the the cons? I mean, we talked about the pros, or at least some of them. We're gonna find a whole bunch more injuries that we weren't going to find otherwise. So what are the downsides there? So I think it's a great question. I think the first part are the pros. The, the pro idea is that you're going to find somebody with a an injury, potentially a lower grade injury that you can treat before they have a stroke. So that's the general idea of why we should be screening for blunt cerebrovascular injury. You know, by the time someone has a stroke and you diagnose it, you've missed the boat. You want to get it before they have that stroke so you, you can treat them. And we'll talk about treatment a little bit later. So that's really the pro side of why we should be doing this. The con side, there's lots of reasons not to do this. Part of it ends up being cost. You know, there's an additional cost for every CAT scan you get. The radiologists charge extra. The patients uh, bear that cost. Uh, it's not an actual cost of the the bottle of contrast or the, the machine, but it's the reading and all the other pieces. So the, the, the financial cost is real, uh, but there's other limitations or other reasons that you might not want to screen. There is a risk of overdiagnosis. So uh, in this case, if you find some injury that, uh, you know, otherwise would not be causing a problem and you treat somebody with anticoagulation and they have a complication from their anticoagulation, that's a cost and that's a potential harm to a patient. Or if you have a patient who has an indeterminate CAT scan and you then send them off to get a, uh, a diagnostic angiogram, those tests 
first of all, they're invasive. Uh, they are painful. You don't want one if you don't absolutely need it, but there's also complications with those. Patients can get a dissection, can get a stroke from those diagnostic angiograms. So imagine doing a lot of extra angiograms for patients who might not really need it. There is cost there. Uh, and I then mean, course- Elliot, I don't mean to cut you off, but even, you know, I think it's really important right this second, like we are recording this for June of 2022. And if anybody listening doesn't know that there's like this huge global shortage of IV contrast, um, they must not be ordering IV contrast scans. So I, I wonder if it's even possible to get these done or to get angios after you've already used IV dye for a CAT scan for diagnosis. So it's a great question. Just to kind of level set so everybody knows what's going on, um, due to the COVID pandemic, uh, one of the main plants that creates and and, um, makes this IV contrast uh, was shut down and it severely limited the availability of IV contrast. Uh, It's one of the main suppliers, about half of the supply comes out of this area. And there's a huge shortage right now And personally, I think it's probably one of the biggest risks to patients due to the COVID pandemic. So I think your point is very well taken. Should we be using contrast that might end up being a scarce commodity for a while for this screening um, when we're only finding um, events in, you know, a relatively small number of patients? It's a very, very fair question. Uh, I think when you talk to uh, people about how they set this up and how they do these CT angiograms, it is potentially possible to do that with not a lot of extra contrast, just, you know, optimizing the timing of when you give it, when you give the bolus for the contrast uh, to be shown in the neck for the cerebrovascular part versus the rest of the torso, chest, and abdomen, pelvis for the rest of the CAT scan information that we want to get. But it is a very valid question. and, And like you said, very, very timely. Elliot, I think those are tons of things to think about, you know, not everything is completely harmless. I do think there's some logistical uh, potential issues as well. You know, this specific paper was done with a really high resolution CAT scan machine, which isn't available everywhere. It's hard to say that if this, if universal screening was put into practice in every trauma center or every ED, you know, in the in the country, would the results be the same? I don't know. It's hard to say. Or would we end up with some equivocal findings? And then what do we do with those? Right. If we get a read that says there may be a blunt cerebrovascular injury, follow up with formal angiogram, but we don't have the resources in place to do that then that may necessitate transfer to um, a higher level of care on its own, just for somewhere that maybe has a neurointerventional radiology team that's available 24 hours a day. Um, So I think before jumping in and saying, absolutely, we should uh, institute this everywhere, make sure that we can actually uh, treat the findings if we're going to find something. 
Well, Marcy, you make some great points, but my takeaway from this paper is we really should be doing more screening. I think it's a, a relatively, uh, it's a non-invasive test. And I think we're finding injuries that are gonna um, help patients by identifying those injuries and then treating them appropriately to prevent really catastrophic strokes uh, in these patients. So, so that's my takeaway is we should be embracing it more. We should be doing more and more screening. And we're likely going to be finding more patients with injury. And I think it's important to know how to treat those injuries. So, David, maybe you could kind of summarize for us some treatment algorithms for patients with blunt cerebrovascular injury. Uh, absolutely. You know, it's a little bit beyond the scope of this paper, but I think it's it's important if we're talking about screening, uh, what we're going to do about it. Um, there aren't, you know, complete consensus guidelines yet, but but there are, you know, some of the guidelines I reviewed were from the major organizations such as EAST. Um, and they're basically based off that uh, BIFL grading we discussed earlier. Um, so just to review that, a BIFL one is less than 25% um, kind of occlusion or irregularity uh, of one of the cerebrovascular vessels. The incidence of this and the carotid, um, the incidence of a stroke would be 3%. And in the vertebrals, the risk is 6%. And the treatment guidelines at this time are uh, heparin on presentation, followed by three to six months of anticoagulation with aspirin. Uh, BIFL2 is that greater than 25% um, luminal irregularity. And this has a 14% chance of stroke in the carotid and a 38% chance in the vertebrals. Uh, and once again, the treatment is primarily anticoagulation. Uh, however, I should say in either case, uh, if the patient is presenting uh, symptomatically, then that could be an indication for either surgical or endovascular intervention. BIFL3 is the pseudoaneurysm. Um, this has a 26% risk of stroke in the carotids and 27% in the vertebrals. Uh, generally, we treat this with anticoagulation if it's small, but if it's symptomatic or greater than one centimeter in size, uh, then surgery or endovascular treatment um, by stenting should be considered. Um, finally, BIFL4 is an obstruction. This has a 50% chance of uh, uh, stroke in the carotids and a 28% chance of stroke in the vertebrals. Uh, this is an interesting one because, you know, you say, well, it's obstructed, so let's intervene. Um, but, you know, if your patient is at risk for reperfusion injury and hemorrhagic stroke, you may actually not want to intervene at all um, surgically on this patient and just kind of leave the obstructed vessel obstructed. Um, so you have to evaluate that patient and see what's their best interest at that time. Uh, and then finally, BIFL5 is a complete transection. Um, and this requires uh, emergent surgical intervention almost 100% of the time. Uh, if you're lucky enough uh, that you can get a stent across it, I guess it's possible, but really you're, you're probably talking about surgery for a BIFL5 transection. Is that true for BIFL5? You know, this one was a was a, a um, vertebral artery. You know, as you know, uh, ex accessing the vertebral is yeah, not a difficult. very easy operation. Um, are there are there uh, interventional radiology or vascular surgery uh, endos endovascular approaches for that? Yeah, I think for the vertebrals, you'd, you'd almost certainly have to take an endovascular approach. Let me add one other point on top of what David was just saying about treatment for these blunt cerebrovascular injuries. Um, there was a lot of uh, mention of anticoagulation and antiplatelet agents. And sometimes these terms are used interchangeably in the sphere of BCVI because there isn't really a standardized agreed upon algorithm for treatment. Many people suggest anticoagulation with heparin. 
Others really suggest antiplatelet agents. There's probably a role for some of the new anticoagulants as well. Um, I don't think there's any definitive answer right now on what the appropriate uh, pharmacologic management is. But even still, we do know that anticoagulation is effective in whatever form we use um, and does help prevent strokes. So dealer's choice. Agree 100%. You know, one of my favorite parts of doing these paper reviews is that we tend to reach out to the authors who wrote it and see if they have any other thoughts or kind of why the paper came about or what is it like, what would be their biggest take homes? And Dr. Jonathan Black, who was the first author on this paper, was kind enough to get back to us with some answers to some of our questions. And he told us that his team first started looking into BCVI in 2016 because they had two really young patients suffer strokes who didn't meet any of the traditional screening criteria. Um, And that was really concerning for them. So they wanted to see if expanded criteria would be more effective. Um, One of their really important points is that their specific CT protocol does not change the amount of IV contrast given. Instead, it starts as a CT angio of the neck, then follows with a CT chest, abdomen, pelvis. And while this technically doesn't allow for a true CT angio of the chest, they find that there's still enough contrast in the thoracic aorta to pick up injuries. Um, And interestingly, Dr. Black noted, as we did too, that the timing of this podcast coincides with the global IV contrast shortage. Um, So his thought is that perhaps that makes this all the more relevant. Why not just give one IV diload, include the CTA of the neck, instead of having to give a second diload later after a high-risk injury is found. So I will leave you with that food for thought. I know we covered a ton of ground today. For even more info, please check out our show notes and references. Thank you all so much for listening, and don't forget to go out and dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.